How is everybody? Good. Hey, the sun is shining and it's supposed to be in the 60s today. That is, yeah. And I've gotten to where I don't care about the Super Bowl because I'm a Patriots fan. So it's, it's usually, it's been Patriots Sunday for the last, you know, two decades. So it's, uh, I don't even know what to do today. Anyways, all right. So if you're, <laughs> if you're new to the church, uh, we just started the book of Matthew. We started it last week. And if you're just jumping in, um, there's probably no better book to jump into than this one. I often say we go through a lot of different books of the Bible. I don't know, we've been through 20 some odd books in the last 11 years. And uh, I say this about all of them because all the Bible is very, very interesting. I talk about how much I love those books and it's one of my favorite books. And, and I, I can say uh, that this is my favorite book of the Bible. I think it's probably the most important book of the Bible. I think it's the book of the Bible that kind of brings it all together and it gives us kind of a 30,000-foot view of the entire message of the Bible. We get everything basically from Genesis to Revelation. We get a little bit in all uh, of Matthew when we read it. Now, if you weren't here last week, we did kind of an intro, and we did chapter one, and at the end of chapter one, we talked about this idea. We asked ourselves, do we have ears to hear? If you weren't here, what we meant by that is, in the book of Revelation, in the first three chapters, Jesus is talking to the church. There's a lot of red letters in the first three chapters of Revelation. And he keeps saying to the church, those who have ears, listen. What that meant was those who want to hear the truth, regardless of what the truth says, regardless if it aligns with how we're living, regardless if it aligns with culture, who wants to hear the truth? And so we asked ourselves last week, are we people that have ears that want to hear what the truth is, regardless of what that's going to be. Because as we get into Matthew, there's going to be some uncomfortable truths for us. So this week, we're going to talk about something. And we're going to get into a story that I would say, regardless if you're a Christian in this room or not, you're pretty familiar with. It's the nativity story, basically. The birth of Jesus, the wise men, the shepherds, the King Herod that wanted to kill baby Jesus. And we're going to go over the story. And again, most of us have been subjected to that story most of our lives. So we know this. But we'll hear some things today that will maybe challenge some of the ways that maybe you've looked at that nativity scene before and maybe some interesting new facts. And from that, we're going to pull out some big timeless principles, some big ideas that we can apply to our lives. The biggest one that we're going to talk about today or the question we're going to kind of ask ourselves is this. Do we acknowledge how dependent we should be on something greater than us. Now, most of us in this room, maybe you have come to the conclusion that there has to be something bigger than us, God, right, for us to lean on to. But a lot of culture, a lot of society, and maybe even quite a few people in this room, we are not at a place to where we are utterly dependent on something bigger than us. Um, when I was studying to get my bachelor's degree at MTSU, I have a bachelor's degree in English literature. And uh, my first, I was in college five years, but my first four years of college, I was not a Christian. I did not believe. And um, I took a whole variety of different classes. I was, in, you know, I was very intrigued by different religions and philosophies and ended up graduating with like 146 hours or something. I don't know why I don't have a master's degree. And, and um, took a lot of classes. And there was a, a time in my life when I was obsessed with philosophy. Studied all the great philosophers and all the ones that most of us are relatively familiar with if you've taken any philosophy classes. And one that I always found extremely interesting and still continue to find him extremely interesting is a really happy fellow named Frederick Nietzsche. 
And um, <laughs> yeah, those of you who've read any Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was a, a 19th century philosopher from Germany, and he's most famous for a quote that's actually taken way out of context, especially by Christians. And the famous quote that he wrote a, a, a short fictional story about was he says in this story that God is dead. And a lot of Christians take that out of context, and we make bumper stickers, literally, that'll say, God is dead, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche is dead, God. You know, and we kind of take this shot and, and say these kind of very kind of ugly things as Christians. But anyways, if you go back and study what Friedrich Nietzsche meant by that phrase, God is dead, it actually came from a short story that he wrote where he was talking about a man who lit a lantern at night, ran into the marketplace, and he started yelling at all the people in the marketplace saying, where is God? I can't find God. God is missing. Where is he? And all the people in the marketplace started kind of laughing and pointing at the man, and they said, didn't you know God is dead? We've killed God, and so have you. And what his point was is Frederick Nietzsche, who was, again, died insane. He was out of his mind when he passed away, a nihilistic, not a very, very good man. But even Frederick Nietzsche, his point was that if society continues to gravitate further away from religion and more and more into secularism, he said that we will get into deeper and deeper despair of which we've never known the depths. If you go on to read this little thing that Nietzsche wrote about God being dead, he was talking about that humanity has philosophized God out of their lives, that we think that we are the biggest thing. There's nothing bigger than us. God is dead, and now we are the focal point, right? It's all about us. He goes on to say in the story that he asks the question, who will clean the knife? Who is going to be held responsible for cleaning the blood off the knife that murdered the idea of God? Frederick Nietzsche in the 19th century predicted two things would happen if we move away from God and move towards secularism. He said two things would happen. He said the first thing that would happen is he said the 20th century would be the most violent century ever. And he was right. More people were killed in the 20th century than the first previous 19 centuries before it, right? And he was German. A lot of it was at the hand of his own people. The second thing that Frederick Nietzsche said would happen if we move away from religion and go towards secularism or self is he said society would lose its mind. We would go mad. Even a man like Frederick Nietzsche a nihilistic philosopher from the 19th century understood the power and the, the purpose and the identity that we find, the meaning humanity finds in acknowledging that we need something bigger than ourselves. But look at our culture today, right? We're a culture that's all about self. We're a culture that there's nothing beyond us. We make our own rules. We decide our own things. And the further and further that the United States moves away from an idea of God, the largest growing people of belief in the United States are called nuns, which means they don't believe in anything. The further and further we move away from God and into secularism, look at what's happening in the world around us right now. Fatherless homes are at an all-time high. Suicide is at an all-time high. Depression and anxiety and fear. We're in constant war. We're in constant turbulence. So today we're going to talk about this. Do we acknowledge how dependent we should be on something greater than us? You guys are like, man, it's not supposed to be that deep on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> we were supposed to wear jerseys and have some cheesy message about chiefs and 49ers and... Sorry to disappoint, we're going to talk about the Bible today, okay? Yeah. All right, so I'm going to pray. I'm not going to be a jerk for the rest of this lesson, I promise. 
I don't know if I can promise that, um, but we're going to pray. You should have received notes handouts when you came at either entrance. It has everything I'm going to say in there. Everything should be on the screens. If you have a Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament. We're in the second chapter of Matthew. So, uh, all right, let's pray and let's jump into this, okay? Lord, we love you and we thank you. God, I thank you so, so much for everyone that's in this room today, God. Lord, I pray that your word, even though it's a story that most of us, if not all of us, have heard multiple times throughout our lives, God. Lord, bring out the principles that we need to apply to our lives, God. Bring out the important things, Lord Jesus, not just the need history, God, but the the timeless things that we need to hold on to that will change our lives, God. Lord, we pray that you don't only bless our church, we pray that you bless every church in our community, the churches we work with up in the Northeast, the churches that we work with all around the world. And God, just keep your hand on us. We pray that everything we talk about today, Lord, that it honors you, and that it edifies this body, God, and makes us stronger and closer to you. We love you, and we thank you, and we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right, we're picking up right after we hear about Mary and Joseph hearing about being uh, going to be the carriers and parents to the Son of God. We move into the birth of Jesus, okay? Chapter 2. Here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard about this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So there's all these specifics. When you get into the book of Matthew, you see all these particular places, particular people, particular times. Why? Why is that so important? It's important because we have to remember Matthew was the journalist of the group. He was the one hanging out in the back, watching all these things that were taking place and taking note because he is trying to build a case for the Jewish people, right, that Jesus is the Savior. So he writes down all these specifics. So faithful Jewish people, the reason why Matthew quotes the Old Testament so much is faithful Jewish people would have known the prophecies of the Old Testament. Virtually all Jewish people would have known these things. So when he talks about these things happening, he's starting to build this case and things are starting to click in the minds of the people that were hearing this. Now, one of the people he talks about is a fascinating individual. Not a good guy, but a fascinating one. Herod the Great. Now, there was a lot of Herods that are mentioned in the Bible, a lot of Herods throughout history. This one is particularly interesting for a lot of different reasons. One is he was not the rightful king of the Jews. He was a politician and he had gained favor with the Roman people. He was appointed by the Romans to be the king of the Jews. And so also notice what's kind of interesting about him is his death doesn't line up with the birth of Christ. All that shows us is there's not a problem with the Bible, but our history records sometimes are off just a little bit, okay? So his appointment by the Roman Senate, this title of King of the Jews, because he loved that power, he loved that title and those accolades, 
to find out that the real king of the Jews, the one that had been prophesied about, to find out that he was being born deeply disturbed him. It bothered him because he believed in the Old Testament prophecies and he saw that his power might be coming to an end. So another group of interesting characters that we learn, and most people are familiar with these guys, are the three wise men or the magi. Now, more than likely, these men were from Babylon. They were extremely intelligent. They were extremely influential. They were probably affluential. They had money. And they were studiers of astronomy, of the stars. They weren't like Harry Potter magicians. I hope that doesn't offend anyone in this room. They weren't like sorcerers, right? They didn't do magic tricks. And so they were scientists. And so more than likely on this long journey that they were traveling on, they probably had this huge entourage. And that's how they got the attention of the king, right? They rolled into town, maybe 30, 40 strong. They had all this stuff with them. They're dressed super fancy. They had all these instruments and all this stuff. They rolled into town and it got the attention of the king. Now, here's what's interesting. How in the world did these non-Jews know about the Messiah? How did they know? Well, there used to be a bunch of Jews living in Babylon during the exile. That's a, kind of a whole other history lesson there. But more than likely, centuries ago, this group of scientists, not these three particular men, but, but there was a whole order of these kind of magi, they got a copy of the Old Testament scriptures. And because they're learners by kind of their trade and their nature, they studied the scripture and they saw and they started looking for the signs that the Bible talked about. Now, why is that important to us? It's important because we see the birth of Jesus was not just for one group of people in one place. It was going to have a global impact, the birth of Jesus. Not only was the birth of Jesus going to have a global impact, the message of Jesus was going to be global as well. It was going to be for every color, every nation, every gender, every type of person, right? Rich or poor, free or slave, all people were going to be impacted by Jesus's message. That's what we see in the Magi. Interesting. And so when we talk about the nativity, right? You guys know what a nativity is. All your grandparents had that thing in the corner during Christmas time. Fun story. My grandfather uh, was a pastor. He passed away a long time ago. Um, and my grandfather, I, I was not a Christian until my, my mid-20s. And every year when I would go up to see my grandfather for Christmas when he was still alive, he had this really like opulent nativity set, like probably paid a lot of money for it. And there's all these, you know, it was very, very ornate. And every year I would stop in like a dollar general and I would buy like some little figure and I would plant it in his nativity set, which is probably a little blasphemous, but I wasn't a Christian. And I would, you know, I'd put like a little Yoda by baby Jesus or something and just, just do these things and see if he would ever notice. And he never would. Either he didn't or he thought it was funny too. I'm not sure. But anyways, the nativity that we're used to may not be historically accurate. So the trip from Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq, was about 800 miles away from Jerusalem, which means if they were booking it, which they probably weren't because of the size of their entourage, it would have taken about six months to travel. Normally, it would have taken somewhere in the neighborhood of one to two years to travel that distance. So what that means is, is the wise men probably weren't there for the birth of Jesus, but we'll get to that later. Now, listen, here's the thing. That's a minor issue. It doesn't negate anything in the Bible, but here's the problem that Christianity has right now. We love to get in arguments about things that really don't matter. So I recommend if you're a Christian in here, focus on the majors 
And if you want to go toe-to-toe on major things like, is Jesus the only pathway to heaven? That's a big deal. That's a major. Let the minor things that don't matter that much, just let them go. It's not worth arguing. The Bible calls that vain babblings or worthless conversations. It's just not worth your time. It's not worth it. So what's interesting is the people that noticed Jesus was coming shouldn't have noticed, and the people who should have noticed were caught off guard. The Jewish leaders, they should have seen this coming. They were the masters of knowing the Scripture. They should have been looking, they should have been anticipating, but they weren't. And we have a bunch of non-Jews, some Gentiles, from 800 miles away that they notice. Now, what that led me to think about, and guys, I'm not trying to be disrespectful of our nation. I love the United States. I've been all around the world, and this is the best place in the world to live. I believe that. But we get sometimes very arrogant and boastful that we are a Christian nation, one nation under God. I'm not sure if I buy that anymore, but that's what we're very boastful about. One nation under God, God bless America. Well, if that is the case, that should mean that we are the ones of all people on earth that should be spiritually sensitive and biblically literate enough to see if God is moving or not moving in our case in our own country. But because we're so biblically illiterate and because as a nation we're not in touch and in tune with God, this is why we're utterly confused right now. Even within Christianity right now, we are utterly confused. We are the people that should be watching, but we have not been watching the skies, have we? We've been too busy looking at ourselves. And it's impossible to see God when we're only looking at ourselves. That's good? All right. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so I can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was. The star that they had seen at its rising, it had led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. So, of course, King Herod didn't want to worship Jesus, right? He wanted to kill Jesus. So he secretly summoned the wise men and he said, hey, when did you first see the star and let me know when you find the baby, right? Because when you find the baby, I want to go worship him too. Of course he didn't. He wanted to kill the child. Now, we'll get to this later. Herod was known for killing people and killing people close to him. But back to the nativity. On the night of Jesus's birth, so if you go to your grandma's house, maybe pluck out the wise men. The shepherds can stay because more than likely they were there. Don't do any of that. It's rude, right? Don't touch people's nativity. More than likely the shepherds were there, but by the time the magi got there, more than likely Jesus was probably about one years old, okay? So again, a little bit different than maybe we think of it in the movies or in our mind. So the magi followed a star. Now, this is a balance of two things. One, it was logical. Just like sailors look at the stars to navigate, just like astrophysicists study the stars, that's how they studied the stars, like a scientist. But there was a supernatural phenomenon that was also taking place. 
And the Bible's pretty clear on that. This was something abnormal. This was something miraculous. So what do we learn by that? We learn that God is a God of both logic and reason, and God is also a supernatural God. He's both. In fact, the Bible tells us to worship him both ways. Yes, we're to worship God with our spirit, our heart, our emotions, our feelings, but we're also to worship God in truth, which means our mind, our intellect. Even the Bible tells us to be intellectually uh, wise, right? The Bible says, what man would build a building without counting the costs? Use your brain that God gave you. So God is not anti-reason or logic, and the Christian shouldn't be anti-reason or logic or science. None of those things go against God. They're in alignment with God, but there's also a supernatural component of God, an emotional part that we worship him in as well. It's a balance of the two, spirit and truth. So imagine these men, these men who, let's just say for argument's sake, have been tracking this star for a year, following this, and they had been studying it for, for God knows how many decades before that. They finally reached their destination. Their destination wasn't a place. Their destination was a person. And when they finally saw, let's say, a one-year-old little Jesus, it says they dropped to their knees. They worshiped him. Imagine how overwhelmed they were. They fully believed that is the savior of mankind. That is the savior of our souls, right? That is God in the flesh, and they saw him. So they brought a bunch of treasures for him, and sometimes we, we kind of make more of this than what it actually is. They presented him with gold and frankincense and myrrh, and people do all these studies. Well, this is this, and this is what that means, and the symbolism here. It's probably not that dramatic. These were the most common gifts that people would give other people. And the reason why they were such common gifts is they were extremely practical gifts. You could basically use gold and frankincense and myrrh as a currency and go anywhere in the known world at that time and barter and use that. And we're going to see that that comes in handy later when Jesus' family has to travel to Egypt and then back, okay? So the Magi must have been some pretty extraordinary guys. They had tremendous faith. They were intelligent, but they were also humble. And after receiving a dream not to go back to King Herod, it says they went back home a different direction. Now, why is that a big deal? Listen, in this time, if you defied a king, it was dangerous, let alone a king who is nuts and murderous like Herod was. And so for them to do the opposite of what Herod told them to do was extremely dangerous, a very gutsy move. Now, this is a lesson for another time, but it's an election year, so it's gonna come up again. Their encounter with the king of kings greatly outweighed any fear of an earthly king. Let it soak in for a second. This year, you're going to hear over and over again, if you don't vote for this person, we're done. If this person gets elected, we're done, right? All this stuff. And there's going to be so much fear put into us about a leader. And all over the world, the same fear is in every nation, right? That if it's not for this leader, we're in big trouble and we fear the government. And don't get me started on the government. But anyways, we need to remember that we follow the king of kings above any leader that is on this earth, regardless of who it is. We need to fear what he tells us to do, God, more than anyone else on this earth, okay? All right, everyone's cool with that? I hope. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up, 
Take the child and his mother, that's Mary, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, let me stop there for a second. If you're going to be outwitted, at least it's by the wise men, right? I mean, you know, it doesn't hurt as bad. But after he had realized he had been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. It's a pretty dark part here. So if you were here for chapter one, Joseph received a dream from an angel of the Lord. He was going to divorce Mary. He has a dream where an angel says, don't divorce her. She is impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Take the boy, name him Jesus. That was dream number one. Dream number two, another angel of the Lord, or maybe the same one, we don't know, wakes up Joseph and says, hey, take your wife, take your son, run to Egypt because Herod is going to try to kill your son. Now, here's where we see one of those funny coincidences actually kind of play out and be good. The gifts from the Magi would have been perfect for him to leave and to travel, and he would have had enough money to provide for his family, to have all the travel expenses, to go into Egypt and come back. So what we learn is this. Even though it was scary, even though, um, you know, we sometimes don't know how everything is going to happen and how we're going to have the resources to make everything happen— If we're faithful, God is going to give us the means. He's going to give us the direction. He's going to show us where to go, and he's going to provide us a way to get there. Very important. And why Egypt? Egypt was the biggest enemy of the Jewish people. So the last place you would want to go is Egypt, but it was actually pretty brilliant. No one would have thought that someone would take their family and purposefully go into Egypt. So that's where he went. Not only was it important because it was the least likely place anyone would search for Jesus, it also fulfilled a prophecy from the Old Testament written 800 years before Jesus was born. And so we see here, this further builds the case that Jesus is the Savior, building this case. So here's what we learn from this. God will provide for us a means out, right? If we're in sticky situations, if we're in tough places, if we will trust God and listen to God, he will give us a means of escape. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, the route that God has us go may not always be an easy route. We may have to go through our version of Egypt. But if we will trust God, God will make a way. It is about trusting him. It is about saying, God, you see everything that's going to happen. This looks tough, but I know that you have my best interest at heart, right? So we have to trust him. That's what we learn from this situation. And so a little bit more about Herod. If you get bored during this fast, because there's you know, three good Christian movies, if you get past those three movies and you want to watch more good stuff, sorry, guys, I am being such a jerk today, and I just don't feel like you guys are digging it, and I'm so sorry. If you get home... 
and you want to watch something interesting, you can Google different documentaries on King Herod. He was actually a fascinating individual. He was brilliant, especially with architecture. There are actually some buildings and and different places he had designed himself that still stand today. Very brilliant architect. He was a brilliant leader. He was also nuts. He was extremely paranoid. He was murderous. He killed one of his wives. He killed one of his sons. He was so paranoid that he was going to lose his power. So the night that he gave the order to go out and kill everyone in Bethlehem, a boy under the age of two, this was not a stretch for him. He had killed before. He was a terrible person. So Jesus was probably about two years old when this took place. And the reason we know that is it says that he looked at the timeline that the Magi had given him, right? And he said, well, this boy is either two or younger. So go out and kill all the boys, two and younger. And that's what they did. Now consider the unbelievable arrogance and evil of this man, Herod. Listen to this, guys. I'm going to set set us up here for a second. This is a man that was Jewish. He was one of God's people, if you will. He knew the scripture. Not only did he know the Old Testament scripture, Herod, he had read it. He had studied it. He knew it. Not only did he know it, he believed it. He believed it so much that when he heard that the Messiah, the Christ had been born, he knew that if I don't do something about it, that boy is going to grow up and take my throne because he's the rightful heir to it. Not only, listen, not only did he know the scripture, he believed the scripture, but he was so arrogant that he thought he could know the scripture, still do what he wanted to do and outsmart God. Now we step back from that and we go, what a maniacal idiot to know what is right and wrong, to do what he wants to do and think that he can outsmart God. How many of us in this room know what is right and wrong? And we think that we can know the scripture, hear the scripture, but twist and turn and manipulate the scripture in a way that suits us. And we think, maybe subconsciously, that we can outsmart God. How many of us have done that? I have. How many of us say things like, well, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend, but it's like we're married in God's eyes. Show me that in the Bible. How often do we try to take our own sin, our own selfishness, and twist and turn, maybe omit some parts that we don't like, and we think that we can do what we want to do, and God's just going to miss it somehow? Maybe none of you have done that. I've done it many times in my life. And so at the end of this portion that I just read for you, we get yet another prophecy. It's from Jeremiah 31. It's actually less of a prophecy than it is a source of comfort. Guys, imagine this night. Imagine they didn't live, you know, like some of us in this room, I don't have, I live in a subdivision, but some of us in this room who have maybe a couple of acres and our neighbor is way over there and maybe you can't hear them very often. These people lived in very, very close proximity to each other. Imagine in Bethlehem, the night when soldiers ran out and your next door neighbor is wailing because their son was murdered right in front of them in their house. Two doors down, you have another family, and they're wailing in agony because their son was viciously murdered in the streets in front of their home. Imagine being in Bethlehem that night, the crying, the weeping, the wailing. It would have been awful. It would have been inconsolable. It would have been terrible. And so the scripture from Jeremiah is not so much a prophecy, but it's recollecting, it's recalling that this had happened before something similar. 
What does that mean to us? Why is that there? It's there because we learn that even in the worst situations, even in the most painful things that can ever happen to us, if we will lean on God during those times, listen, and if we will go back to the scripture, the scripture shows us that there is no evil that is new to mankind. People have been doing evil things and bad things have been happening to decent people for a long time. But when we go back into the scripture, we see that God still comforts and delivers. And so we find comfort and power and strength in the word of God, even in times that are inconsolable. They're very, very bad. That's why this scripture is in there for us. So after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother and he entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in another dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So Herod was dead, but his son wasn't much better. So after Herod's death, another angel of the Lord, or again, maybe the same one, came to Joseph in what I think is now his third dream and said, go back to Israel, go back. And then in yet a fourth dream, it says, well, don't go right back to this area. Go up north to this area of Galilee in a place called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was Mary and Joseph's stomping grounds. That was, the, that was their hometown, right? That's where they grew up. So they knew that town a little bit. And it wasn't the best of towns. The previous times when I have taught Matthew, I've always equated this to someplace in the United States. And last, my, last night, my wife goes, don't say anyone's hometown, right? Like, don't say like a city because someone's going to be from that city. Don't do that. And so I'm not going to do that. But this town had a bad reputation. It was almost derogatory to be associated with Nazareth. This was a town of outcasts. This was a town of lowlifes. This was a town of people who were running from their past. This was a scandalous town. And that's where our Savior grew up as a boy. That's where he grew up, amongst the lowest of the low. And we love that about Jesus, don't we? We love that Jesus strategically places himself with the taxpayers and the sinners and the prostitutes and the liars, because that's who he came to save. We love that. We love the Jesus Christ of the poor and impoverished. We love the Jesus Christ of the broken and neglected. But what we tend to do is we celebrate the fact that Jesus loves the poor, but a lot of us have acquired a hatred for the rich. We've acquired a hatred for the entitled. We've acquired a hatred for the privileged. And I hate to break it to us, but Jesus loves all people. We kind of have this very evil, sinful Robin Hood mentality in American culture right now that we steal from the rich to give to the poor. Do you know stealing, regardless of who it's from, is still a sin, right? Everyone knows that, right? Do you know it's also a sin to envy and covet? So when we look at rich people and say, I should have what they have, they should have to sell their things and give it to me, you are breaking a 10 commandment when you think like that. The Bible even says, don't worry about what they have. You just focus on what God has given you, right? Be content with where God has placed you. God will deal with those people if they're living immorally. So listen, God loves the poor, absolutely. He says, blessed are the poor in chapter five. But he also loves the rich. How do we know that? 
He was really close to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And we wouldn't have a burial plot, we wouldn't have a burial place for our Savior if it weren't for a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. He loves all people. And we need to be careful to celebrate that fact, but not overcompensate in a way that is dangerous and, quite frankly, evil. We need to be careful. Now, in the book of Matthew, every single detail is worth noting. Listen, I love this part. What Matthew is doing is he's building this case. And the first time you read it, you're like, whoa, all these coincidences, and they start to stack up, and maybe they're not coincidences at all. It's so interesting that Jesus got gold and frankincense and myrrh, and oh my goodness, that would have been the perfect gift to pay for their trip to Egypt. Those coincidences actually start to build up into a very strong case that God has his hand in this whole thing. It's the same thing in our lives, guys. When we're on the windy, crazy, turbulent road of this life, when we're in the middle of it, we're like, God, what the heck is going on, right? This is nuts. I don't know how things are going to work out. But if we are faithful and we look back on our lives, right, and we see all the twists and the turn and we say, oh my goodness, God, you were there. God, you were there too. It's so clear to me now that every step of the way you were there. And what happens is, is over a lifetime of trusting God, a reputation is built in us of him. What that means is this. If we will learn to trust him and if we look back on the past and see all the times God has saved us and helped us and helped us navigate this life, the next time adversity comes, we don't freak out. The next time we can't pay our bills, we don't shake our fist at God and renounce our faith and walk away because we know, listen, God will never lead us anywhere with the purpose of us failing. Anyone besides me in this room? When you look back on your life, God is the perfect father. He doesn't take us somewhere. He didn't bring the Jews to the Red Sea just to be like, oh, I guess you're screwed now, right? <laughs> no, he parted the Red Sea. God always takes us somewhere to win, not to fail. He's there for us. And we need to go back and we need to remember and we need to let that reputation build within us of how faithful he is. Amen. So virtually all Jewish people like I said earlier, they would have known the prophecies. They were raised ever since they were little bitty kids, and they studied the word over and over and over and over. So virtually all Jewish adults would have known the Old Testament very, very well. At the end of this chapter, we have kind of a juxtaposition of a lot of prophecies. There are several different prophets that said that the Savior would come out of Nazareth. So what Matthew is doing is he says to fulfill with the prophets, plural, that he would be called a Nazarene. What's interesting about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are over 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 300. The book of Matthew focuses really on 13 that are extremely blatant. I mean ones that are extremely blatant. It said this would happen, and this is exactly what happened. Remember, what Matthew is doing is he's building a case, not just for the Jews, it builds a case for us as well. So we studied this story today, and it's a story, again, that, that I would say virtually all of you in this room have heard in some form or fashion, right? Maybe there's a couple of little things that you never thought about. Man, maybe the, the wise men weren't there. Maybe Jesus was a little older than what I thought he was when these things happened, but very minor differences. But this is a story that most of us know. So the trick with a chapter like this is, how do we read a chapter like this, and what are the things, like I said last week, what are the things we are to pull out of that that apply to our lives now, right now, today. The first timeless principle that we get out of that, I think comes from the Magi. 
Listen, the Magi dedicated their lives to looking up. They dedicated their lives to not only looking up to the heavens, but saying, God, show us where to go, show us what to do, and we'll go. What they were asking for is they were asking for wisdom. They were asking for discernment, the ability to know which road I should take, what is right and what is wrong. What do we learn? We learn that like the Magi, metaphorically, we should be looking up, right? Our answers come from this vertical relationship, not from this horizontal relationship, but this vertical relationship. This is where our answers come from. And two gifts of the Holy Spirit that I think we need more than any other gifts of the Holy Spirit, right now more than anything, we need wisdom and we need discernment. If you don't know what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, look up 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. They give you a lot of clarity on what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are. And so often in church circles, we pray for specific ones. And the only one that I know of that the Bible says we will always receive is the gift of wisdom. It even says you'll receive it in abundance. Guys, the world is crazy. We need wisdom. It is hard to navigate what is right and what is wrong because even within Christianity, we are not biblically literate enough or we twist and manipulate it so much that even Christianity doesn't know its ways up and down right now. We need discernment. We need the gift of wisdom. We need the gift of discernment. You need to be praying for that. Look up, ask for these things. From Joseph and Mary, we learn that all of us will face some kind of adversity because of our faith. It's not a matter of if you're going to face adversity because you're a follower of Jesus. It's a matter of when it's going to happen and how we're going to respond. That's why Jesus told his followers, some of you are going to lose your family. Some of you are going to lose your relationships. Some of you are going to live very uncomfortable lives because of your faith and you're following me. Some of you may get passed up for job promotions. He looked at his disciples and he told them that there's going to be extreme persecution. And at the time, maybe they didn't know how bad that was. But 11, I'm sorry, 10 of the 12 disciples were violently murdered. One of them hung himself, Judas, and John, who wasn't violently murdered, died of natural causes, but even he was boiled alive. These men suffered horrible fates. Bartholomew was hacked to death by machetes for their faith. So in our lives, guys, if you haven't faced adversity yet, I, I give you my word, you will. If you're living out this book, you will face adversity. How are you going to handle it when you're not as popular as you used to be? How are you going to handle it when even family members turn their back on you? How will you handle it if relationships have to come to an end? How will we respond? We have also learned today a timeless principle that God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. He knows the beginning of everything. He knows the end of everything. He knows every choice that's going to be made in that matter. And if we will get it in our thick skulls that God has already seen it all unfold, we should trust in his plan that he's going to provide a means of escape for us. It may be difficult, it may not be easy, but he knows what he's doing. A timeless principle that we need to get deep into our minds today is that God knows everything and we don't. We need him, we need to trust him. God, it looks difficult, but you said go that way, I'm gonna go that way because you're gonna work everything out. You're gonna work everything out. We have learned from today, and it does not say this in the Bible, but it alludes to it and it gives us many examples that bad things happen to good people. Jesus even says, in this life, there will be suffering. But he goes on to say, take heart. 
I've overcome this life. I've overcome this world. What that means is Christians are not promised happiness. Do you, do you want to know why? Happiness is contingent on your circumstances. And Christians are not always promised good circumstances. God promises us something better than happiness. He promises us contentment. Contentment is not required. It's not, a, it's not contingent on your circumstances. What that means is regardless of what happens to me, I have contentment because I have God. And what it means is regardless of how chaotic the world gets, I have peace because the Prince of Peace is with me. In fact, the Bible calls it a peace that passes all understanding. Yes, are bad things going to happen to good people? Of course they are. But if we're connected to Jesus Christ, we will be able to have contentment and peace throughout those bad things. We've also learned that Jesus was from Nazareth, a town of outcasts, a town of people who were running from their problems, a town full of shady individuals, broken individuals, lost individuals. And right in the middle of that broken area, that pocket of misfits, God puts his son, the great physician, the one that has come. And it says later on in the gospel that Jesus says, I came not for those who are well. This is tongue in cheek. This is Jesus being sarcastic. He says, I didn't come for those who are good. I came for those who are sick. They're the ones that need a physician. Jesus knew though, the sarcasm that is, Jesus knew that we were all sick without him. Without a relationship with God, without a knowledge of him, without a connection with him, we're all broken. We're all messed up. We're all on the wrong path. The problem is, is that there are people in this room right now and a lot of people outside in culture and society that think they've got it figured out. And humility escapes them. And even someone as mad and nihilistic as Frederick Nietzsche said, without a dependency on something bigger, we are lost. We will slip into utter despair. That's why, again, fatherless homes are out the roof. Suicide, out the roof. Divorce, if people still get married, out the roof. Anxiety, out the roof. Depression, out the roof. War and famine and heartbreak and people being hurt and violence, out the roof. Corruption in our politics, out the roof. The world is messed up. And the more and more that we say we can fix our own problems, the deeper the mud is that we walk into. Do we acknowledge that we need something bigger than ourselves? Do you know what I'm learning? I'm, I'm 40 years old. I have two girls that are growing up way too fast. I have a wonderful wife. I live in a nice neighborhood. I got a big old church. Do you know what I'm noticing? The more and more, the older I get, the faster my kids grow up, the longer I'm married to my wife and the bigger this church gets. Every single day I wake up and say, God, without you today, I'm gonna mess it up. Without you today, I'm going to blow my marriage. Without you today, I'm not going to raise my kids in the way that I should. Without you today, I'm going to mess up this church that you, for some reason, let me lead. And it is that utter dependence. Guys, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm admitting to you how imperfect I am. This morning, I was in the shower praying it, because if you have kids, that's the only place you have to pray, right? <laughs> I was in the shower this morning, literally on my knees saying, God, if I don't have you today, I'm, I'm going I'm to say something wrong. I'm going to go the wrong direction. I'm not going to be the man that you need me to be. Do you realize 
If we are not leaning on that strong tower, if we are not building our lives on a rock, your marriage is going to fall apart. Your kids are going to run wild. Our society is going to become insane if it hasn't already. That our schools will be lost. Our, our, our universities will be lost. Our workplaces will be lost. Do we realize how utterly dependent we should be on something greater than us? Would you bow your heads with me? Listen, if you are in this room and maybe you do not have a relationship with God, maybe you have questions, maybe you're new and you're kind of like, well, this is intriguing, but I don't even know what to do. Up here on my right, your left, at the corner of the stage, Pastor Isaac is up here. He's our discipleship pastor. Got a master's degree in, in divinity in the Bible and, and um, he was a chaplain in the army. Pretty learned guy. If you have any questions, you're not gonna throw him off. You're not gonna upset him. You're not gonna, he's not gonna get offended by anything you may ask. If you have any questions in here, please come talk to Isaac. He would love to talk with you. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, anything at all, you can come up if it's something with your health or your job or your family or, man, maybe there's some of you in this room who are like, man, may, I have not been humble. I have not depended on God. Maybe you need prayer. Come up and get prayer. And then the last thing we have in this room, another option for you is we have communion represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine. All of us are welcome to take that and we're to remember that God loves us so much that he has given us clear instruction, that he has given us wisdom, he has given us a path, that he came and, and died and shed his blood and his body was beaten for us, that we can be saved. Everyone is welcome to take communion in this room as long as you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. Father, Lord, we love you, God, and we praise you. Lord, keep your hand on us, God. When we leave this place, there is so much responsibility. There is so much pressure and stress. There is so much confusion, God, and, and hubris, and there is so much chaos out there, Lord. God, the only way that we can navigate this life is to completely fall on you, God to just lean on you and, and humble ourselves and say, God, we are utterly dependent on your guidance. Help us. Let us be a humble people, a people that recognize that without you, God, we will slide, as Nietzsche said, right into utter despair. Lord, keep your hand on my brothers and sisters in this room. Lead us, guide us, protect us, strengthen us. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.